Welcome to episode four of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 20th of February, 2017. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelim. How's it going? And Jesse. Good evening. And no Ike, because he is ill in bed and has no voice, according to his uh, Hangouts message that he sent me earlier, but I'm, I'm dubious. I think he's probably uh, writing a whole new window manager or something, and he's just too busy. Nah, just a lightweight. <laughs> yeah, so he will be missed, but we'll crack on. And uh, we've got an interview coming up later with uh, Richard Brown of the OpenSUSE project. So that should be interesting. But uh, let's get straight on with it then and talk about some news. And the first one is exciting. The It's always exciting news first. I don't know why. It might be the way I uh, put the doc together. But anyway, the GDP Pocket, which is a 7-inch laptop, which has come with Ubuntu. Let's completely ignore the fact that it's Windows 10 and most people want it. It's, it's an Ubuntu laptop and it's tiny and it looks cool. And I really want one, but I can't justify it. And it has absolutely smashed through its goal. So it asked for 200,000 and it's got 1.3 million. So they are sort of 650% past. And I, can someone explain to me why everyone wants this? Or why uh, Windows is the same price as Linux? Well, that's a good question. Um, probably because they're not looking to sell that many of the Linux versions. I mean, I looked earlier on today, it's probably a lot more now, but it was about five times as many Windows ones have been sold or pledged or whatever you want to call it than the Ubuntu ones. But why would you want it? Okay, so this thing is a seven-inch touchscreen with a tiny little keyboard in a tiny little form factor with various ports on it not too many ports and an atom processor and eight gigs of ram but it's a beefy atom it's like the highest end atom you can get i think pretty much and a 1080p seven inch screen as well why wouldn't you want this thing it's like a tiny little laptop that you can take anywhere in your pocket it sounds like a phone with a keyboard but with a giant fan and a massive heatsink. Yeah, but it's GNU slash Linux. It's not Android rubbish. Surely you'd like this. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. But do you notice that it should really be an ARM processor? And then it could be passively cooled, but it probably isn't because they want to sell Windows on it. And if they did that, it would eliminate the ability to get licenses for the uh, non-Windows OS. Or is that just me being conspiracy theorist? Well, if you put an ARM processor in this thing, even the highest end ARM processor, it's not going to run as well, is it, is the bottom line, as even even a low-end Atom, really. And this is a high-end Atom. And yeah, okay, you talk about the cooling, but it does have a fan. It does have air vents and everything. So I don't think cooling is going to be a massive issue. And with an ARM processor, it it would just be underpowered, wouldn't it? You mean with an ARM processor, it couldn't run Windows and therefore it never would have hit its goal because... No one just wants an Ubuntu, you know, Ubuntu-based laptop. Even though it is, I don't know, I flip between it being cool and it being a complete waste of space and time. Well, it's a, a bit of a toy, isn't it? And that's why I'm not buying one. The Did you see line. the picture down below where to connect useful things to it, you have to attach a massive dongle to it, which is essentially half the size of the unit again. <laughs> well, that is a little bit unfair. Was this designed by Johnny Ives, by any chance? <laughs> well, possibly. But it does have a USB-C and a USB-3 Type-A uh, and a mini or micro HDMI and a 3.5mm headphone jack. So for your basic stuff, plug in a mouse in, which you're definitely going to need, it's... It, you know, it's got the ports there. The, they're selling the as a separate bundle this dock thing, which has got loads more ports on it, which is just a hub, really, isn't it? Um, 
But I, I think you could get away without that with just one proper USB port. I say proper, one old style USB and one USB C. Sounds like you're buying one. I, I really want one. I really, really want one, but I just cannot justify it. And what size screen does Ubuntu or or Windows, either one, become uh, too small that you can't actually use it properly? Because the whole point of Ubuntu having their convergence, you know, even if they're not chasing that dream anymore, the fundamental idea behind it was that on a tiny screen for a phone, five inch, you had to have a one particular interface on a tablet. 10 inch you had a different one and on your full size 24 inch monitor you had you know the normal ubuntu desktop yet we're now at a size seven inches is halfway between a phone and a, a you know a sensible sized tablet yet it's still this tiny uh tiny version of ubuntu and it's a 1920 by 1200 pixel screen so you could technically run everything just as is and watch as your retinas bleed <laughs> yeah well i don't know that's why it's a bit of a toy, really, isn't it? But the the promotional video for it on Indiegogo was so funny. Like the the English in it. I don't wish to mock foreigners, um, especially in the presence of them, eh? Hey. <laughs> but um, yeah, some of the English was a bit ropey, wasn't it? Like t- calling it a chocolate keyboard, for example, <laughs> <laughs> and and saying like it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be a big hit with fashion women. And stuff, which uh, <laughs> I missed that afterwards. Oh, this is this is the video that went on and on and on. Yeah, with no um, no voiceover or anything, just loads of just really quite dense text that I had to keep pausing to try and um, decipher. But yeah. well, the bottom line is it's happening. And when I looked earlier, there were five hundred plus Ubuntu ones being sold. So it's yet more Linux hardware, which is the the kind of headline here. Even if it's also Windows hardware. We'll just gloss over that and say, look, it's more Ubuntu and Linux hardware out there, and that's got to be a good thing. And Poppy will have one, so you'll be able to borrow it anyway. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's not that long ago that you wouldn't have even considered or you'd have been shocked at seeing Ubuntu as an option. So it's it's good that it's there. But then from the positive of that, there's the, the low on the next news story about Munich and that they've been held up as this sort of bastion of you know using Linux um, across all of their um, PCs within within the uh, government, and unfortunately, it looks like, or it's not been confirmed, they're going to be returning to Windows. There's been a lot of back and forth from everyone. Everyone's got an opinion about this, haven't they? Like assholes, as they say. And um, th- the opinion that I have taken most seriously is that. This is not Linux's fault. It is management's fault. It's typical bureaucracy of local government. They thought they could save a few quid by using Linux, and they just didn't do it right. Instead of paying SUSE or Red Hat or Canonical to come and do a fully you know, supported, managed rollout, they just knocked up their own dodgy version with KDE 3 and then KDE 4, rolled it out, didn't even properly take into consideration the hardware it was going to run on and the printers and everything. And it was just a giant clusterfuck that's been going for 10 years. And someone is finally, you know, talking some sense on this. Look, let's move back to Windows like everyone else. The funny thing is, though, you see from the report that I think it was Accenture that did it, they were actually saying that the Windows devices that they had on the network were equally giving the same type of issue where it was wasn't wasn't actually a technical issue it was more a 
a managerial issue with the way they were setting stuff up. Well, I mean, some of their machines are running Windows 2000, for fuck's sake, yeah. and XP and Vista, none of which are supported anymore. Uh, you know, they've still got those Windows machines there, and it looks like they just don't understand that you can't really get away with using 10 or 15-year-old hardware today. Yeah. And and they thought that they could save a few quid by installing Linux on this old hardware, whereas really they should have worked with a proper company, maybe even the likes of Gartner or something, to come in and and properly consult on uh, a holistic approach, uh, if to use a word I hate, and and rather than just trying to patch it together. And another thing I heard that they uh, are trying to pay people forty thousand euros a year to basically manage this stuff. Now, okay, 40 grand is not to be sniffed at, but it, for this kind of position, that's not much. So no wonder, you know, pay peanuts, get monkeys. Yeah. I think we need to stop using Linux as a way to put on a ropey machine you've got in the corner full of dust. The whole advantage to it is the fact that it's flexible and you can actually do with it what you want to. You're not held back by the license agreement or whatever they allow you with their API or, you know, all the undocumented features. You've got full access to everything. You should actually build the proper thing you want, customize it the way you need it to be, and actually do the thing bloody properly. Like, it's uh, it's infuriating. But one of the main problems was um, the fact that you had one local government in Munich using um, open office, I think. I don't think it was even LibreOffice, was it? So, But it, open standards where every other government with whom they had to uh, interact was using um, Microsoft. And so obviously you're going to get problems there unless you mandate on a federal, you know, nationwide basis that everyone has to use open standards in, you know, obviously only in government, you can't mandate that for private users and, and businesses. But if it's taxpayer money being spent on it, you have to do it from that high level. And that seems tricky to say the least. I think it'd be an interesting conversation to describe to the local hospital while they can't get their MRI machine because they had to buy a bunch of Windows 10 licenses to do the same job that was being done already, you know? I mean, this wouldn't have been a problem had other uh, city governments or, you know, let's say that the full government said this is how it's going to be and more people moved across. If in those 10 years other big cities had jumped on board and, okay, they did it different to this and Munich moved it moved over from uh, Limux to what they were using and, and did it better, then you wouldn't be having this conversation, you know, with all the problems they've got. But no one else has. I mean, there've been a couple of little ones here and there and we hear about Italy or this and the other, but it's not the big push that maybe Munich was hoping for when they m took this big decision. And just reading, you know, some of these descriptions, um, it, it says it, users complained of intermittent rather than persistent issues with problems cited, including printing, viewing and editing documents, unstable programs, da-da-da. And, I think if I had that at my work, I would be up in arms and be, you know, be throwing stuff out. I spend all day at the computer. If it doesn't work day to day with those basic things, you've, you know, the IT needs to be chucked out. Well, yeah, I mean, like I, I set up um, a very small office situation for my dad and his company. And I tried it with Linux and the printer was hit and miss. Printers just need to be destroyed. Just, I mean, they just... Pure evil devices. Yeah, office space style where they just oh. batter it with uh, <laughs> bats and that. But yeah, this the second that it, printing didn't work, that was it. That was my personal benchmark. And I was like, right, we have to go with Windows. It's as simple as that. And since I've done that, 
almost no problems with printing. Obviously, it won't do Windows updates now, and the scheduled backups I tried to make it do don't work. But let's, uh, you know, concentrate on printing for a second. Here's the thing about that, though. I bet if they have an issue with, well, as you say, backups or any other feature, they'll be a damn sight more lenient when it comes to Windows than it comes to Linux. I guarantee it. Because it never gets the sort of fair side of things. I've seen projects with companies where absolutely getting wiped out on one particular side of thing, and then instantly it's a big problem with Linux if this tiny little thing doesn't work in the corner. Whereas meanwhile, the entire network's down because of a virus outbreak or something like that. And there's never the same sort of level of um, comparison with it. Yeah, yeah. I suppose people, um, if it's if it's something different, then they're just gonna. Well, it's like when you fix someone's machine and then something else breaks and it was your fault for fixing it in the first place. That's why I try not to do that anymore. But, um, well, well, we'll have to see what happens with this Munich situation, but it's not looking good. And um, the fact that Microsoft's uh, German HQ moved into Munich not long ago has got absolutely nothing to do with the story. HQs. <laughs> so let's talk about elementary OS. And they are crowdfunding a pay-what-you-want app store, again, on Indiegogo. The idea being that developers will submit their software, charge what they want, and um, Elementary will get a little cut of that. Not quite charge what you want. I, I don't think anyone who submits the app store is going to be allowed to define a minimum price. So there, there won't be like... Uh, this software is a minimum of $5, whereas this software is a minimum of you know, zero, whatever you want. So there will always be that um, that option to go for free. And perhaps on the on the interface, you know, there'll be a recommended price or what have you. Yeah, sorry, I said charge what you like. I meant pay what you like. Sorry, that's the thing. The, the idea is that you as the user will pay what you want. And this software is all going to be open source. So you could, in theory, get it another way and not pay. So it's kind of... Um, almost like the kind of um, donation model, really. Yeah, so the crowdfunding itself is in order to pay for elementary OS um, programmers to to get together and be in one place, spend a week hacking on it and putting it together so that you've got a, a usable uh, bit of software that they can they can put out as an alpha and get people to, to bang on and, and trial. I, I believe um, all of the software on the back end will be uh, run on GitHub, so that's that's why you've got to basically. Um, I don't think anyone can charge what they want because it's been pulled in through GitHub. So you need an account on that if you want to submit software and what have you. But it it seems like a good idea. I mean, app stores seem to be sort of a, a trend at the moment. You know, GNOME have their own, and Ubuntu have their own, and or maybe they've moved to GNOME when I forget. But there, there seems to be a number of different people producing different things, and, and elementary of OS have always uh, sort of made their own in order to keep the aesthetic and the style consistent within their operating system so it's not hugely surprising but i think it's important they're doing it again in their way which is to have some sort of model that you can pay what you want and it and it's a 70 30 split between the developer of the app and elementary os yeah i mean they've never been shy of making a few quid have they is it not a fraction cheeky though to uh to get a kickstarter funding thing to build your own shop essentially that you're going to take a cut out of the sales of mm, not really i mean as long as they're transparent about it which they are i mean they, they're not claiming anything else are they they're saying it'd be nice if you contributed to this and helped us out and i don't think there's anything disingenuous about it it's if you're not interested 
then don't back it, which I presume you haven't. I haven't, no, surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, neither have I. I mean, elementary OS to me, I don't know. I don't know if I should say this, but the thing is, if you're just going to base your distro on Ubuntu, even if you've got your own desktop environment, I, I find it tricky to take seriously a distro that doesn't compile and host all of its own packages, basically, you know, build and host and have its own repos. So the likes of Mint and Elementary, which have their own repos as well, but point it, you know, point other repos, you know, package managers at the Ubuntu repos. To me, it just, it feels like not a proper distro. I mean, it's not exactly changing the wallpaper installing xfce and calling it a distro but it's um it's on the spectrum towards that if you know what i mean yeah i don't know i, I guess i don't have as much a problem with that i mean i don't see why everybody has to compile the same package because you know potentially introduce a bug that is only part of your build system or something bizarre like that when really there's no need to but i mean i think yeah probably there's a, a more fair way to do it perhaps we need some sort of giant meta project what, like um, Flatpak and Snaps? Maybe. Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, fair enough. Good luck to them. But um, that kind of brings me to how they are doing it, and they're writing it in Vala. The Norwegian blue of languages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, it's a shame that Ike is in bed with Manflu and can't tell us about this. I'm pretty sure he saw the headline, and that's where he got the flu. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um. Because the bottom line is, Vala appears to be pretty much dead and only being maintained as a language by one of the elementary developers, which is a lot of work to maintain a language, I understand. Yeah, and I think he, he I remember seeing him talking about saying there's only 150 commits or something. I don't know whether it was a year or what, I'm not sure, but it's not like he was committing lots either. Mm. And so, not only are they taking on a distro but and also this new app center, but they're also taking on a entire language, which they're going to have to maintain, which most people have moved away from. It was Flavor of the Month, and Solus was originally built with it, but Ike deeply regrets that. He's told us in the Telegram group, yeah. and, and on air as well, I think, and that he's attempting to slowly migrate away from it because it is basically a dead language. It was a flash in the pan that, you know, has gone away or is dying. So it doesn't fill me with confidence, I'm afraid, for them. No, and it's good that there's a single dependency on GitHub again from yet another project. I can't use GitLab or something. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, whoops. <laughs> yeah, what could go wrong there, eh? Aye, nothing. Um, all right, um... Let's talk about gaming. Again, it's a shame that Ike isn't here because he is, seems to be the, the one who's mostly into games. But it's uh, Pharonix benchmarks, basically. Windows 10 versus Ubuntu uh, 16.10, I think. And the bottom line is Windows shits all over Ubuntu. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, the best they could say about it was that on average, the Linux benchmarks are sort of 70% what the Windows benchmarks are for Windows 10. And that's not close enough by a long shot. I mean, I was, I was going through, so they've, they've benchmarked 
a whole host of games. There's sort of a half dozen or so, a dozen or so games. Um, and the fact that on nearly every single one, Ubuntu is sort of 50% the speed of Windows, and then there's maybe two or three where it's comparable, you know, able to match. That's not the sort of performance that you want when you're uh, deciding whether or not you want to pick Windows or Linux to, to run your games. And let's face it, Ubuntu is the flagship distro, isn't it? It's the distro that everyone... If you've not heard of Linux much, or if you've barely heard of Linux, you've probably just about heard of Ubuntu. And so that that's the kind of poster child, flagship, whatever other cliche you want to call it. It's the first distro that people think of. And that cannot compete with Windows 10 on on gaming, which is very important to a lot of people. I don't care at all about games, for I am not a child. Ooh, <laughs> ooh, we'll get some angry hate mail about that. But I mean, Jesse, you play a few games, don't you? But probably not to the point where you are that bothered and you haven't installed Windows to do it, have you? No, if I'm honest, I've most of my gaming is done on the PlayStation. You you turn it on and it does what it needs to do. And well, after it's updated for about half an hour. <laughs> oh my word! You're not, we're not even fucking joking. Yesterday, my flatmate bought a new game, uh, one of the run around shooting ones, and um, we put it in, and it said to use this online, you have to update. Like, ah, we don't use online. We're local. It's fine. You couldn't choose any of the options in the game. Uh, until it had done its update and you look back it was a 16 gig download to do this and so we had to leave it for an hour literally for an hour come back and a little pop-up always comes up saying oh your download is now finished another 20 minutes later to install it and then you could actually play the game that you'd bought you'd put we'd put the disc in it and that was it it has to do this massive download it was absolutely it was the worst of the worst it was ridiculous So you probably should start PC gaming then, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, even with those. The problem is that, I mean, my PC is old and, you know, I I dick around on a few um, sort of RTSs, but I have to crank everything down. It's it's a sad time that everything's kind of fuzzy and slow. Um, I just don't use it enough for that context to to warrant upgrading it and getting all these flashy new graphics cards. Um, and, And like I say, got a PlayStation yeah, fair enough. Well, it would have been interesting to see some other distros in this. But it's got to be down to the, the just the graphics driver, surely, I and mean, that's got to be the, the real bottleneck. Yeah, I would have thought so, yeah. Or the Pharonix right. benchmark test kit. Nah, maybe. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, the, the, my understanding is that the, the graphics drivers, even the, even the proprietary ones for Linux, just aren't as good. And, and this pretty much backs that up, doesn't it? So... Yeah, we should clarify that the only graphics cards they were using in the tests were NVIDIA, um, GeForce GTXs. And so there was no AMD, there was no Vulkan, if that's even quite come out yet. Um, so we're not sure, you know, if perhaps the Vulk, um, the AMD graphics cards are any better. But, you know, NVIDIA are really the, the top of the tree at the moment. So it's the one that you'd expect them to do the test with. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, right. Let's have a bit more positive news then, or at least in theory. Failing, you bought a new phone, man. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I'm really jealous. I've got a trusty old OnePlus One, and then Jesse has to outdo me and buy a OnePlus Three, and then you have to buy a bloody OnePlus Three T. Yeah. Well, 
don't be too jealous because I've only just managed to get it working and it's only taken about two weeks to do that. <laughs> because you um, refuse to use the proprietary software and you have to use Lineage with no Google Apps. Yeah, well, I wasn't even able to do that for quite a while there after I borked the entire thing. But um, yeah, no, I I had a incident with my S4, which somehow the screen got cracked. I don't know what I did to it, but uh, it got totally cracked. The whole thing died. I couldn't get it to boot back again. Um so I said, you know, I've had enough of this. So I'm actually going to get what appears to be a, re- a recommended phone by everybody. So I thought, yeah, I'll give that a go. So, and uh, yeah, so even purchasing it, I couldn't do properly. I managed to buy a European charger, which I don't know how that happened. I thought uh, you are European. <laughs> yeah, well, we have the similar plugs to yourselves. I'm not going to say the UK plugs because we have them too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so proper UK plugs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, managed to do that. I didn't really because I assumed then if they were advertising these plugs to charge it so much that well, there's clearly not one in the box, but now there was. So I now have two different plugs for it. Um, it's a nice piece of kit. Um, the case that came with it, yeah, it's rubbish. I don't know. It's like a sheet of paper, carbon fiber paper. Fair enough, but I, I would get the uh, other box that you can get on the page, which I didn't realize you could get um, until afterwards. So I had to do another order for that. But the well, this is the case that's like a, a quite a quite a sort of rough black finish, and it clips yeah. on around the sides. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's made out of two two layers essentially. That they the rubber bit goes over the whole phone, and then there's like a harder outside bit too. Uh, essentially, no, if you no, want I'm to not drop talking about the, the waste of money. There's an auto box, whatever it is. I'm no, about the, the other the one, one. Yeah, that... the, uh, yeah the, the 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 make it look slightly different coloured case is essentially all it does. And maybe it'll stop a scratch, but oh yeah. The lens on the camera, I don't know if the 3 is the same as the 3T, but it doesn't have stick out off the back of the phone. And if you don't buy the case, there is no way that lens is going to be any shape to take a picture after about a week in your pocket. Yeah, unless they've got one of those super fancy glasses that's that's harder than diamond or what have you. But well, I think you that- might keep diamonds in your pocket. Who are they to make that choice, you know? But, I mean, the, the case, as far as I'm concerned, that OnePlus provide is basically a moneymaker because you cannot hold the phone because it's so slippery. Like it's yeah, elegant... it's Teflon coated for sure. Yeah, and they all seem to be coming out of this. I mean, I haven't hold, sorry, I haven't held all of these new phones and what have you that, you know, the the Apples and the the one from Google that's come out recently. But if they're all this sort of aluminium unibody da-di-da design, they're all going to be as impossible to hold as each other. And I cannot a, you can't hold them. They're ridiculous. You have to put a little case on it so that it's grippy. Yeah. And B, because they're metal, you can't use conductive charging. So you don't get wireless charging on any of these. And that's one of the things that I kind of wanted in my new phone. All right. Yeah, I didn't actually realize that. But I mean, with the dash charging, I mean, I have charged it really, really quick. Because uh, <laughs> with it sitting in the firmware boot and fast boot modes for so long, it was eating through the battery because it's not doing any sort of power saving. So I got to see how fast I could drain the battery each time as I was desperately trying to reflash it back together again. Well, let's let's get to that, right? The dash charging, yeah, okay, charged in five minutes, whatever, boring. Let's talk about the software aspect of it. So you can't tell me you didn't boot it up into OxygenOS. Well, I had to, because I had to go in and tap whatever t- amount of times I get to become an Android developer on the uh, the version number of the device. And, and then... you know you know, you had a cheeky play with the Google Apps, didn't you? I quick, didn't. I didn't, I didn't on not maps, even load a thing. Nothing. Oh, come on. 
you can, you, uh, you can get a Freedom of Information Act from my phone <laughs> ID and demand it from Google Dublin, and they'll they'll tell you nothing came from this phone. So literally, you just went in, enabled developer options, enabled yeah, USB um, debugging, and then just straight away. Yeah, you have to you have to tell it to do uh, enable firmware, open firmware, or something like that. I can't remember the exact phrase. Oh, you have to yeah, and yeah, enable unlocking of bootloader. So exactly, fast boot OEM unlock. Boom. Yeah, that's it. And then you managed to brick it because <laughs> yeah, no. Not just brick it, but hard brick it. I uh, completely gubbed it because the problem is, and this is why I hate doing this with phones, that XDA develop utter shite website, that crappy form of nonsense. People complain when there's 30 pages of stuff that you have to check through and then discover that, you know, around 25, the solution is there. But then at 32, oh, no, don't do that. It'll screw it up. This had 500-odd posts. Jesus. It's nuts. And, you know, fair enough. I'm sure the developer was slightly updating the front page. But, I mean, you're taking their word on checking out each of those ones as well. So, uh, yeah, I managed to... What I just, what I should have done, for anybody who's ever going to do this, is update the damn phone first. Like, stick Wi-Fi in it or whatever. Update the phone, because then you'll get the baseband updated and the uh. firmware updated and what was it turns out that that wasn't updated to enough level that when i stuck lineage on it i kept getting this mismatch of um, ah, because thing. you told me that it was because it, well basically originally there was an image for the one plus three and um now there's one image for the three or the three t so in theory yeah. you could flash the same image on your phone and jesse's phone yeah, but I kept getting this error, and I thought, okay, it's clearly not a unified image. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I'm being stupid here. Ah, but but uh, no. it was the radio. You yeah. had to flash the radio separately then. Yeah, I mean, you know, come on, lads. A bit of a better error message would have been nice rather right. than the cryptic nonsense. Um, but so if you do that and then you do flash it, it's actually nice. I mean, I would actually almost stay away from XDA develop for this thing and just go to the actual lin- um Sorry, the OnePlus, the OnePlus forums are actually better. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. yeah, and you know that you actually see a guy who possibly works there or is d- definitely high up in sort of the community with stuff, posting actual valuable info, and that's where I got the recovery uh, image for it. And uh, yeah, I had to had to rent a Windows laptop off my brother there temporarily to reflash it because apparently there is just no tools to be had, which I just don't understand. This thing cannot be doing much. Bar, I don't know whether it's DDing it directly through the USB cable in some sort of fancy fashion. I don't know what it's doing, but it's essentially getting data onto the damn device, whether AT commands or what, I don't know. It did mm. show up on Linux. It shows up as an AT modem. Um, mm. So, I mean, I can't, I can't believe that Matthew Garrett or, or the likes of these people out there are not doing this all the time. They need to write one just so I can brick this phone more. <laughs> well, that's the <laughs> um, problem, isn't it? That anything to do with custom ROMs and stuff Although we're talking about a Linux-based operating system, most people don't give a shit about Linux and they use Windows. Yeah, and here's my terrifying part, though, because when I did go to, when I did brick it, I put the wrong firmware on it because I misread a post in, you know, page whatever, and it was actually the the 3, not the 3T modem I put on it is what I think happened. And in the course of that, I end up digging through how these things are written, and it's nothing more than a zip with a, a manifest file. Uh, and all the correct f- uh, files and i looked at there's a in the manifest there is a, a set of commands to to you know essentially what goes where it's very simple and i thought okay i could make one of these from the original one that comes and then in the original one from the actual one plus firmware there's a simple line up the top saying if it's not this phone model 
don't install it. So you've got people making these firmware blobs for the phones and, you know, I don't know how much skill they have, but they're probably not a developer. And because, you know, anybody would go, okay, look, I'm going to help you not shoot yourself in the foot too much here. All I had to say was, if model is not A3003, then don't install it. Yeah, I mean, I've done that with um, various Nexus images and and tried to flash the wrong one because I've downloaded it not looking properly and it just doesn't let you do it. So, yeah, you'd expect that, wouldn't you? But I fixed it and I got it working. So how long have you had it working now then? Uh, how many hours is that? Uh, six. All <laughs> oh, right. So you haven't got a proper. Well, I suppose you've just got the very first impression. Then I mean, hardware-wise, you, you like it and stuff. Then yeah, oh, it's nice. It's a nice. It's a nice size. I mean, it's a bit bigger than what I'm used to, but it's nice. It's well built. It feels like a solid piece of kit, and with the proper case on it, I'm I'm not worried it's going to break anytime soon. Yeah. And it's it's definitely quick. I mean, I was using an S4 for, what is it, about four or five months there. And I actually think my S3 was quicker. I don't know how that's possible, but it feel, felt quicker. Um, but this, you can definitely see the difference. I mean, fair enough. This, uh, the worst part is, though, I'm going to set this up exactly like I had the S3, the S4, and a previous phone before it. I'm really not going to be able to tell the difference, I don't think, but maybe I'll see it somewhere. Well, that's the thing. That's why I haven't bothered updating my OnePlus One. It's good enough yeah. And if I if I got a 3T, I'd flash Lineage, I would flash the Google apps, which would make you go, um, and then I would install ADW uh, Launcher, and I'd import my old config, and it would be exactly the same phone, basically, yeah. except a little bit faster. And yeah. yeah, if it broke, I'd definitely consider it. But right now, what's the point? The OnePlus One is a great phone, and yeah. no doubt these the, the two, the three, and the 3T are better, but... Not better enough for me, I'm afraid. One thing I will say, I heard a lot of people saying that you can be a bit hit and miss with the support. Mm. But um, I had to get like a, a VAT invoice because it, it is a work phone. Um, and I had I wasn't sure how to do it. And I got in touch with them, got on the chat with them and that. Really quick, really helpful. Fired it off to me straight away and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, good for me anyway. <laughs> Stuart told uh, Stuart Language of Bad Voltage fame yeah. and many other things. He he was talking about his experience with them, and they sent a courier, picked it up, took it away, fixed it, sent it back, working, no problem. And everyone yeah. had warned him, even me. I had to say to him, look, don't buy one. He, he got a OnePlus X. And I said, look, their their customer service is crap. But they've obviously seen those rumors and you know the, those stories on the internet yeah. and decided to uh, pull their finger out, which is good. Fair, so. It's probably a third party who does that, but anyway, and it's probably just a case of them changing provider, maybe. Maybe, yeah. But yeah. also, I mean, look at the OnePlus One when it came out. You had to sort of get an, get an invite and, and all that sort of for all about getting the phone itself they clearly couldn't keep up with the production runs there was a big gap between that and the one plus yeah. two mm. and now you look at the cadence of the two three three t four you know it's, it's a lot more well not regular it's a lot more frequent and that's probably because they've worked out how to you know just they're just learning on the job and, and maybe mm. part of that is their customer services yeah, yeah. true yeah they, they seem to be growing as a company and now that google have basically shat the bed with pixel with it just ridiculous fucking price it seems that the the nerds are all about the oneplus phones these days it's finally i am current yeah you're you're down with the kids failing man well done hipster glasses coming my way (laughs) yeah hipster snapchat glasses with the uh, cameras built in only 150 dollars or whatever (laughs) 
Um, right. Well, so it sounds like that's a good phone then, and I'm incredibly jealous of both of you now. Just wait till Ike gets something better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you are about three years behind the time, so don't blame us. Well, yeah, but the OnePlus One's a great phone. I don't need to update it. Well, then, stop moaning. So now, basically, everyone I know has got a better phone than me. Like, Popey, Wimpy, and you two have all got better phones than me. <sighs> oh, well. Uh, right, bit of admin then. Um, lots of people got in touch with us to say, Tuxedo Computers in Germany, because we had mistakenly said that Entraware are the only European Linux laptop seller. And we were wrong. German company, Tuxedo Computers. Um, check them out. There's nothing hugely exciting about them except for Linux hardware, really. So I just thought I'd um, give them a shout out. I'm sure they'll be very pleased with that shout out. Yeah. <laughs> Checks in the poster. Look, it's all in bloody German. What am I supposed to do? I don't speak German, even though I should do. Um, it, all right. So someone tell me something exciting about Tuxedo Computers. Fabulous computers, great prices. You really should go and look at them uh, and sell them across Europe. Done. Not even look at the website. So <laughs> <laughs> tell us about video editors then. Uh, I've realized the error was that I said, oh, you know, get in touch. And a lot of people decided to get in touch on the uh, Telegram group. And that thing shoots past messages at like a rate of knots I can't keep up with. So it's very difficult to then go and find where these great suggestions have come from. But uh, we've got a few. So uh, we had um, Richard Potts on G+, um, got in touch and said about a company called Blackmagic make uh, a product called DaVinci Resolve. And it looks like an incredibly high-end suite. And he says the free one does come uh, only for Mac and Windows, but the paid version uh, is available for Linux. A lot of people talked about Blender. Obviously, there's some really good examples, again, on, on the G Plus page of uh, some videos that have been made with Blender and a couple of other bits of software on, on the side. Lightworks... And then uh, Will on the website and a bunch of other people got in touch to say that Caden Live was was a big one. Now, I think Caden Live is maybe not quite high end enough for what my friend needs, but these are all you know solid suggestions. And we're going to have to have a chat afterwards about how we ask for people to get in contact because, as I say, the uh, the Telegram group isn't a way that you can find it. Unless maybe we have like a keyword that no one else would ever <laughs> write that you can then search. You know, if, if the keyword was like uh, toe fluff, then you know you could oh, you could go back and search for that. So, I don't well, know. my pro tip for you and anyone in Telegram is forward messages to yourself, and then you can read them later. So if you get if you see an interesting message, that um, forward it to yourself, and then you can scroll back far easier. You know, I've probably got twenty messages that I forwarded to myself, and that's easy to find the thing that I'm looking for. Uh, r rather than trying to scroll back through thousands of posts. What I'm saying is not that I see the message and I forget to write it down. It's that, yeah. you know, if, if I wake <laughs> up and there's 600 messages, I can't go back through them. Well, that's your problem if you're not around <laughs> enough. Say. Now, I think next time you ask for something, maybe ask for emails and then you've got that more easily searchable or something. It would be, yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, um, show at latenightlinux.com is the email address. Uh, or you can go to latenightlinux.com slash contact, and there's various ways to get in touch, including the Telegram group, which was uh, approaching Ubuntu, and then they did their dirty tactics again. So latenightlinux.com slash Telegram. Join us if you want to have a, a chat with us there live, except, um, well, Ike's ill in bed, 
I'm really busy and you two are never in it. So it's uh, just fellow <laughs> listeners at the moment, pretty much. But when Ike's fighting fit, he's usually in there overnight, just typing all sorts of crazy stuff and, and posting. We had a, let, let's see who can post the worst song um, on YouTube competition. And uh, I, I don't know, it was a stalemate in the end, a, a terrible, terrible stalemate. Um. Right, uh, before we move on then, yeah, exciting news. Woo, Foss Talk Live 2017, 24th of June, the Harrison in King's Cross in London again. What's Foss Talk Live, I hear you ask? A live, no, a free evening of live Linux podcasts. So last year it was Linux Luddites, Ubuntu podcast, Linux Voice, and then something that we will just forget about, which was too much um, drinking by me and swearing and C-bombs, etc., um but yeah it was a good event um you had fun jesse i take it absolutely yeah good stuff so this year so far we have confirmed the three of us uh but not ike because he's refusing to come to england because he likes ireland too much or something and complains about not having enough money who knows anyway the guinness won't be right yeah something like that probably true (laughs) well yeah what are you gonna do um so at least the three of us we will try and convince ike but it's not looking good and Ubuntu Podcast are also confirmed. I've asked Linux Voice, and they are... I'm not going to say they are terrible at communication. They are <laughs> fucking terrible at communication, <laughs> basically. They're nice fellas, but try and like send them an email or tweet them or whatever, and you just don't get anything. And they don't use Telegram. They, they use IRC, and it's only really Graham. Anyway, whatever. I'm waiting to hear from them. I'm really hoping, because they were my personal highlight last year. Um, I need to sort out the website and loads of other stuff, but for now, I'll just stick it in the diary. Saturday, the 24th of June. Last time it started at like six and ended at 11, half 11, something like that. So it's, it's basically an evening, Saturday evening in June. Um, I told Paddy about it. He said that he's not going to come. And he was uh, quick to point out that the 24th of June is Independence Day plus one. So I'm glad he's not coming, that Brexit voting bastard. <laughs> It is that weird pub that closes very promptly, doesn't it? It's like it shuts at 11. Oh, you people need to sort that out. Which is painful. It's, it's just It's, it's, it's out of the ordinary. I, uh, you're freaks, honestly. Oh, time. Uh, if you know homes to go to, it's like, what the fuck is that shit? <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, honestly. We all don't lock in ourselves with the uh, landlord. Well, we that don't works. all do that, you know. Don't, we don't, yeah, live, no. don't do that in the city. Mm, fair enough. Well, I don't know. It's a good venue. <clears throat> Stop dissing them. It's free. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a really tiny venue as well. Um, and I get the feeling it's going to sell out quick. It's going to be free, but we'll still have tickets for it, if that makes sense, so that we know where once you register a ticket, that means you're guaranteed entrance, and then you'll be able to turn up and hopefully get in. But I've got a feeling it's going to be rammed this time because I looked at bigger venues and they were just really expensive and too much hassle. And um, the the fella at the Harrison is is cool and everything. Jack is called. It was really easy to organise it, and he, and so that's we're going to do it there again, and we'll see what happens anyway. Um, yeah, I suppose it has the benefit of knowing that the sound all worked, and they had a thousand chairs, even though you couldn't fit a thousand in the in the intimate room. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it was, it was a good laugh last time. Yeah. Um, right. So before we get onto the interview, just a quick one. Um, Google Play Music terribly proprietary service that you are a big fan of jesse i learned of a foss command line player for it 
and uh, made you try it out. What did you think? I guess it does what it says on the tin. And yes, I hold my hands up. I love Google Music. Um, I suppose it's you either go Spotify or Google Music if you want the world's music collection at your fingertips. And I went that way. Um, it's a simple uh, two sort of column affair with all of the al- all of the artists that you want down the left hand side. And then once you select one, I think it was Spacebar, uh, it expands to show their. Uh, their albums and the right hand side if you've got the artist selected it shows all the songs and if you've got the album selected just the songs from that album and it's it's still in early um sort of development so i don't think there's a random button you know you can skip to the next track and things like this but it's it's simple simple to understand and does what you want i mean i, I guess if you perhaps had uh, a, a central server and you had multiple um, speakers or something you could you could potentially use that to you know sort of SSH into your server. That's and what I was going to say. Things. Off your phone, for example, you could SSH into that one box that's got all your drives and you know all you. I suppose it's all it's not necessarily local, though, is it? This it's mostly um, streamed, isn't it? Google Play Music. Yeah, exactly. So this is recognizing uh, the albums that I own and have uploaded, so it recognizes and then allows me to play them no matter what, and also because I have access to to everything, you can't actually search at the moment. So it is only the albums that you've either purchased through Google or um, have on your account. As I say, I did it by uploading and then that confirms that I own the, that music sort of thing. Um, so, But there, there's the talking about adding new things like the search functionality. And the thing that I use mostly on Google Music is picking a radio. So, you know, you pick Anthrax or whatever and it starts playing bands and songs like that uh, and then you just you get a, a much nicer playlist than just one album. Okay, next album, sort of thing. So and did that work then? No, that needs to be added yet. Oh, right. Okay. So it's yeah, it's early. It's called Jam anyway. I forgot to say that. Um, I, I don't know how I feel about it really. I mean, it's the, a a FOSS project, a FOSS client to connect to a horribly proprietary service. So I'm failing. You are probably just rolling your eyes listening to this. Just a tad, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did buy some tracks through Google Music, but I download them straight away um, because I, I bought most of my stuff through 7 Digital just because it was a, a DRM-free mm. way to get a, an MP3. Um, but I have got a couple from Google, but the whole idea of streaming music, I, I just I don't like it. If my internet goes down. I want to be able to at least listen to some bloody music if I don't have YouTube. I kind of do something. Yeah, I do have a fair bit of local music. And I end up just using YouTube if uh, there's the odd song that I don't have that I want to listen to. don't like new music anyway. Am I, am I the only person who has a huge rack of CDs in my lounge still? Oh, yeah. I got rid of my CDs long since. And the DVDs and anything physical. Just ripped it all. And it's just sitting on a hard drive now. Why would you bother just cluttering up the place with dead um, media? Well, that's it. I bought a new uh, optical drive for my PC. Because <laughs> oh, I went to use mine for the first time to rip a CD and the thing bloody exploded. <laughs> I had to hammer the, the CD out of the thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's nice to have the media. At least you know you got a backup of it. But I don't know. I don't trust the damn discs anyway. No, I think um, just maybe just make an ISO of it. it like... I mean, flax good enough, surely it's lossless. And if you have a reasonable backup solution, um, who needs physical media anymore? Not me. Yeah, when I, when I did all my encoding, well, you know, a decade, 15 years ago, uh, I was 
had, had, had no way in which I could get enough storage to allow myself to do lossless and probably wasn't really that familiar with lossless either. But now, you know, you can buy three terabytes without blinking and and get it all there. But it's just all those CDs to re-rip. And I've even got CDs still in their cellophane where if I bought them <laughs> off Amazon, you get the CD and you get the MP3 download. So it saves me all of that effort of having to uh, rip it. Rip them. And then stick them all in a pile, pour petrol on it, and set fire to them. That's what I say. Jesus. (laughs) Excellent for the environment. Um, Right, then. uh, I keep mentioning this interview, uh, so let's hear that now. I'm delighted to welcome Richard Brown to the show, who is the chairman of OpenSUSE. So welcome, Richard. Hello. Thank you very much. So the reason that I asked you to come on the show was we hear a lot from Ubuntu and other young whippersnapper distros like Solus, Ike will never shut up about that. Thankfully, he's not here today. But we don't hear that much about SUSE and OpenSUSE. And you being the chairman, I thought, well, who knows more about it than you do? So I thought I'd get you to come on and sell it to us. So, and you mentioned on Twitter when we first talked about this, various features of OpenSUSE that are selling points. So which one do you want to start with? Well, yeah, I guess, well, the, the first point is, like, the project's no longer about a single distribution. So, you know, like, people talk about OpenSUSE like we just do one distro, when in fact now we have, like, two totally different offerings aiming for totally different use cases, built in totally different ways. It's like, yeah, a different take on the whole thing than what most other people are doing. So that's Tumbleweed and Leap, then? Yeah, so we've we've got uh, uh, Leap, which is our our hybrid distribution. So in, in terms of like who we're aiming it for, it's like the same kind of audience as, as the traditional OpenSUSE or the let's say the traditional Ubuntu, the kind of more conservative desktop user or conservative Linux user. I don't want to say desktop because it's multi-purpose like any decent distro. Um, but we don't build it like any of the other distros. So it's not like or any other community distros. It's not a separate community code base. Um, SUSE actually actively put all of their source code for all of SLEDs out in the open in our build service. That's all we do for building all this stuff. And then we build a full-blown, juicy community distribution on top of that, which is what we call it. So is it kind of the opposite way around to Fedora and Red Hat? Um, it, it's uh, yes and no. Like I, I love this part because, like in, in the olden days, it was easy. Like it would just like Fedora was the upstream for Red Hat and OpenSUSE was the upstream for for Slee. And, and now, like Leap is simultaneously upstream and downstream of Slee. So, so is that something to do with the the kernel is upstream, but the applications are downstream? Or is is it divided that simply, or is it a little bit more grey? It's 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 less gray now. When we first started it, it was that gray. Like we really let the community define like where this line was. Um, you know, so there was you know obviously it's a community project, so there was no hard lines to start with. But the way it's kind of evolved over the last two years, because it's two years old now, is um, the base system is pretty much like ninety nine point nine percent slurs. Same kernel, same system D. All of those base system packages are pretty much identical. Um, Mostly because, to be honest, community contributors are lazy. And when SUSE guys are you know, doing all the work for Slee anyway, what community guy really wants to go replacing that with their own package? 
especially when they're going to have to maintain it and patch it and all that stuff. So what we're mainly talking about with Leap, the kind of above the SLE base system stuff. So lots of user space applications, lots of, of packages and libraries that you would just never get in a enterprise distribution. So there are like tons of offerings for developers and test environments and all that kind of techie stuff, which like a lot of enterprise distros would love to be able to ship. They just can't realistically support it for 10 years. And multimedia stuff as well, presumably. And multimedia stuff, um, mostly. Although, obviously, with OpenSUSE, we're, we're uh, you know, a, a GPL v2 project through and through. Um, so, you know, with that and certain patent concerns, we, it's not like we've got un- uh, lots of codecs sitting in there that we you know, can't distribute normally. Okay, so that defines Leap as the sort of uh, solid base, similar to the the Enterprise Edition, with some more useful applications on the top of it for, for your everyday uh, desktop or home user. So where does Tumbleweed come into it? Tumbleweed is the best rolling release, bar none. So, you know, it's <laughs> a big claim. It's a big claim, and I and I can I can back it up now. Um, you know, I, I, it's you know it is it is Arch done properly. No, it's rolling releases done properly. I don't want to pick on Arch because I, I really respect what they're doing and where they come from. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's they set out to do a rolling release first, and therefore designed everything that way. We set out. I mean, the, the history of Tumbleweed as it now is. We just set out to make our, our dev stack stable. So factory, which is kind of algorithm to rawhide. We set out of, you know, yeah, let's just make sure this thing stops crashing. And we kind of accidentally stumbled on having a really good rolling release. So you've mentioned rawhide there. That's a leap uh, reference, isn't it? No, Rawhide is is in in the Fedora project. Rawhide is their their development code branch. That's where they put everything before they put it into main Fedora for a main release. So everyone can check everything in. That's where all the developers are constantly making changes. And the idea is all your developers should be there using, in their case, Rawhide to you know be right there with head as your development code base right now. And then they branch that and make their traditional distribution versions of that. In OpenSUSE, we had uh, we had Factory, which served exactly the same purpose. But so we set out with Tumbleweed, or what's now known as Tumbleweed, to start making Factory more stable. So, um, because the the reality we had is, it's a lovely development code base. Everybody can check everything in, but the damn thing never worked. So no one ever actually used it. So it always broke. So no one ever worked on it, so it was always broken forever, and it gets in the way of everything at that point. So we we kind of in isolation, not even knowing that Leap was on the horizon, we we kind of just looked at okay, how do we make this damn thing stable? Um, so we started. Um, well, obviously we were doing lots of stuff in the in Open Build Service anyway in our in our build tool. So we started structuring that an awful lot more, being much more rigorous with uh, the workflow of how you check stuff in, how you build it before, kind of utilizing all the features we have there. And then on top of all of that, layering on a ridiculous amount of automated testing using our, our tool called OpenQA. And OpenQA is is magic. Um, it, I also now use it in my other day job, where it, it's the only tool I know out there that can do like end-to-end full system operating system testing. And I'm careful with my language there because I'm not just talking about Linux. It can boot up anything, test it from installation to death with every application inside it on pretty much every architecture, on VMs, on real machines, etc. So when you've got a test tool like that, like 
you can just go nuts and like fully test the entire distribution end to end just because some guy's checking in a new version of LibreOffice. But by other operating systems, do you mean BSD and stuff, or do you mean the dreaded Windows and Apple? I I mean all of the above. Yeah, I mean oh. we've we actually use it for testing the Windows installation process now um, because we install Windows automatically in order to then install OpenSUSE automatically next to it to make sure we haven't balked dual booting. And is that something that you guys wrote yourself? Yeah, it originally started as a, a SUSE Hack Week project. So one of my, one of my colleagues was working on it way back when, um, and then they uh, like OpenSUSE started picking it up for this project of hardening factory. Um, and, and since then, it's just skyrocketed because once once we got to a certain point with doing this with factory, we like we'd realized we made a rolling release, um, and in fact. We had the project at that time. This is like 2014. We were in this lovely awkward position where we basically had two rolling releases. We had this hardened version of Factory, and we had what was called Tumbleweed at the time, um, which was Greg Crowhartman's baby of like his attempt to do a rolling release by like layering rolling updates on top of a, a static base. Didn't really work out too well, but well, you know, it was a good exercise in learning this. Um, and had some users. So we we basically took both of these concepts of like hardened factory and tumbleweed, mashed them all together at the end of 2014, and yeah, accelerated everything since then. Stable base and rolling applications on top of it. That sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it, Phelim? Yeah, just a tad. <laughs> yeah, it's a lovely idea, um, and it's completely and utterly fundamentally impossible and wrong and bad. And we, we tried it for four years, and... It works well for getting out when you get started, and at some point you end up either you either end up compromising a whole bunch of stuff or breaking a whole bunch of stuff. And and uh, you know, like I said, this was started by like Greg KH. He knows what he's doing. Even he couldn't actually keep that going properly full time. Yeah, well, I'll tell uh, Jonathan Riddle next time I speak to him then that he's. Uh... No, not going to be doing very well with it. Well, exactly. Me, me and I mean, I, I've had a few chats with Jonathan. Actually, I caught up with the game at Fostem, and I, I'm just waiting for the day that it all falls apart because I, I can see it coming. Like I, I was keeping an eye on Neon lately, and they're doing all the same things we did the first time. They're hitting those little road bumps, and like at some point, you just get a point where you're like, okay, we have to move the base system, or we can't move the stack above. And I, I don't know how they're going to deal with that because if they if they don't move the stack above, what happens with KDE? Or if they modify the base system, they're going to be creating Frankenbuntu, and that's kind of scary. Well, I imagine, I'm not speaking from here myself, but I imagine either Flatpak or Snaps will take in. So I guess my question would be, how is that going to affect the fact that you've got a nice rolling distro that maybe people are going to kind of move the distro into the, the background even more? Yeah, I rabbited on about this for like an hour at Fostemp, so I can give you the whole speech again. <laughs> You've got five minutes to go. I've uh, got five minutes. So um, the the short version is actually Flatpak and Snappy and, and all this stuff don't remove that problem. In fact, they, they exacerbate it. So you still end up with this like barrier between the base system and the stuff in the container. Um, and at some point, that container application guy is going to be making assumptions about what's coming from his base system. At some point, those assumptions will be bullshit. Even if they're not, and that, that apt guy is doing a wonderful job and putting like every dependency he's ever going to need in that application container, well, at that point, they've become a distro guy. 
Are they going to be monitoring all the CEVs for that? Are they going to be handling all those integration issues? Are they going to be handling those legal issues? Like the amount of projects that pump up stuff, even internally to its own project that has like legal compatibilities issues with their own licenses is insane. <laughs> ZFS. Exactly. <laughs> and as a distribution, we take care of that. So it's not just like the hard coding thing or does it work, but it's, it's like, you know, keeping our noses clear because we're the guys who currently take the legal responsibility of distributing the software. I really love all of these application containers and stuff because it will ultimately mean less work for us distros. Cool. Less work, less responsibility. Fun. But that's going to be moved to these other guys. And I don't think they realize how much of an arsake it's going to be for them. But you've assumed there that the people who are using your distro will only want the applications that you've decided to package. And not only the applications, um, maybe you don't pick one that they do want, but the latest version, you know, you might not be entirely up to date on what there is. And the latest version might have features that someone needs. So if you're not I get the impression that you're not taking on board any of these containerized methodologies. So are you just sort of saying, well, if you want that, then go and pick a different distro? Oh, oh no, no, we take them on board. We've got Flatpak supporting in Tumbleweed and Leap. We've got Snappy supporting Tumbleweed and Leap. Like I say, I, I like the idea. I just worry about actually like the long-term impacts on users. Like I, I don't think the responsibility is being transferred along with the, the code and the actual sort of power. You know, with great power comes great responsibility there's a gap there that will need to be addressed. I want to see it addressed before it starts eating users. Um, as long as it gets addressed, I don't really care. All right, so circling back to the beginning of this and, and selling it to me, um, say I have someone who has never used Linux before, they're sick of Windows, would you recommend OpenSUSE to them? And if so, which one? For that Typical person, not knowing anything about like how technical savvy they are, or like how interested are they in being on the cutting edge of stuff. You know, Leap is like the perfect choice. Just dump it on their machine; it works. We're updating it with minor versions every year, major versions every few years, basically in synchronized with whatever SUSE are doing on the enterprise side of things. And so, how long is it going to be before I have to come and deal with it for them? You know, if can I just show them how to do updates in a GUI and just leave them to it? Exactly. For how long? Uh, well, for minor upgrades, it's it's one year. Then it's a two, one or two commands. Um, I think it's two commands right now. We're trying to get it down to one for upgrading commands. to the next minor version. Uh, or GUI if you're using certain GUIs. But we support more than one desktop. You know, we're not just a KDE project. We're not just a GNOME one. Um, so to play safe, I'm just going to say commands. But, you know, in some cases, it's a GUI applet. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. And for this new user, do you have... Um... A software center? Is there a nice graphical way of getting your, your software? Because that seems to be the, the big thing at the moment is ways of people getting their apps. Yep, in GNOME software. So if you're GNOME, we have GNOME software. On the KDE side of things, we have Discover, but you know it's reflecting where it is upstream right now. So I wouldn't say it's like wonderfully polished like it is in GNOME software. So you'd recommend the, the GNOME version then, by the sounds of things, for a new user? Personally, yes, me. Yes, I'm full-blown GNOME guy. Right. Well, we're not all perfect. <laughs> so last time uh i was messing around with uh Suze, open Suza, there was they had you had yast but i got the impression that it was kind of getting a taking a bit more of a back seat uh, is yast still a, a major item in Suza? yeah it's a major item um it, in fact it recently last two or three years got completely rewritten in ruby um so there's no more of this weird ycp language we wrote ourselves um it, it's still a really key part of things um but it's not like the be all and end all 
like we have a whole bunch of stuff with like salt stack in there now as well. So it sounds to me like there's a, a split between the people who are working on Leap and the people who work on Tumbleweed. You, you touched on that at the start. Um, is, is that so? And, and give us a bit more detail about Tumbleweed. Yeah, uh, I, a split's a bit of a harsh way of putting it. But yeah, I mean, Tumbleweed, I guess, is is where most of the traditional OpenSUSE contributor community like migrated to. Because uh, you've, you've got people there that are just you know keen, enthusiastic, wanting to do this because they're interested with what's going on in the Linux world. Um, so having a, a code base which can just move at the pace of contribution, you know, really, you know, it, it's really appealing to them. Um, so like to the point where like some of our OpenSUSE community teams don't just keep up with their respective upstreams, but it's sometimes like slightly outpace them, which is always slightly embarrassing. Um, so things like GNOME releases being released within, in Tumbleweed within like 48 hours of the upstream release, which is faster than everybody else. Um, in the case of KDE, um, we did Plasma 5.9 on the day of release, which was faster than Neon, I believe, which, yeah, a little bit embarrassing for Neon, but just like shows how the how the community is enthusiastic behind it, but also how like all this extra work we do with the build service and OpenQA doesn't get in the way of just like letting something run as fast as we can. And then Leap is a combination of these same people working on this thing, but at a slightly slower pace. And then, of course, all of the SUSE Linux Enterprise engineers who are using it as their kind of public viewing of of Sleep. And uh, just before we get towards the end of this, um, you're saying off air that SUSE have a uh, sort of a, a freeform code event coming up. Can you just describe that and, and what you're going to be working on? Yeah, um, it, it, we call it Hack Week. Um, we do it uh, at least once a year, um, normally involving not just all of SUSE R&D, but anybody we can get from the community as well. Um, and it's a, a whole week where everybody at SUSE can just work on whatever the heck they want. Um, a few years ago, I did a project for migrating CentOS to SUSE, like in place, um, which worked really, really well on CentOS <laughs> 6. And then they broke something in CentOS 7, which I will never forgive them for. Um, uh, and yeah, other weird one of stuff. Like, it, it doesn't even have to be related to Linux. Like, we even have guys like, get, like, getting their keyboard working properly, uh, their music keyboard and like fixing MIDI interfaces and stuff, or just weird and random stuff. As long as you have fun and learn something that's like the only thing the bosses care about. This year, um, I've just decided I'm going to be working on, uh, a little bit of stuff with OpenQA. So I was talking about all the kind of system testing and I'm going to see if I can like dial that back and narrow it down. So like, we can just have, nice easy package test the developer can just like write one test and OpenQA will automatically boot up every distro we care about see if this install this application see if the application runs and like i even wanted to like actually write the initial tests and take like the initial reference screenshots themselves and if i can get all that to work i won't just do it for the SUSE distros but i'll dive in and see if i can do it again for like ubuntu and, and well fedora i'll probably bake in because fedora is already running OpenQA. Oh, sounds good. Well, uh, time gets the better of us, so we'd uh, better say goodbye. But uh, if people want to find out more about you and OpenSUSE and SUSE generally, where where should they go? www.opensuse.org. Or if they uh, want to come see us in person, we've got the OpenSUSE conference at the end of May um, in Nuremberg. Excellent. Well, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. And I feel like we've only just scratched the surface of SUSE, so you'll have to come back on at some point and tell us more about it. Anytime. More than happy to be here. That was a really good... Uh interview um i've got to say susa was the first distro i really used kind of long term 
That was a very long time ago, though, because it was the only one that came on a DVD or a CD and uh, didn't have internet and there was no way to download stuff. So I really, my view of it is very, very out of date. So it was nice to get a bit of a catch up on that. And um, I think there's a few things we should definitely come back to. Uh, the open QA system certainly sounds very interesting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the whole thing sounds very interesting, but then it just somehow doesn't get enough hype for for most people to check out. And, you know, it seems they're plugging away on all this good stuff. And then, you know, Solus comes out with a new update or, you know, Ubuntu with snaps and everything. And I just seem to always get distracted. That's why I really wanted to speak yeah. to Richard and, and find out a bit about what's actually going on over there. Yeah, it kind of you wonder how are they existing still if they're <laughs> if they're able to do so little on PR or certainly to hear their PR if they're doing it. I don't know where they're doing it. Maybe they're really popular in Germany and we're just ignorant to the fact that it's so popular over there. I don't know. Yeah, I think that might be the case. I think that just the in the enterprise in Germany and the rest of non UK and Ireland Europe, if that makes sense, I think that they are quite big, aren't they? Well, I mean, I did hear um, someone who was related to Susie come on uh, Bad Voltage like a year and a bit ago, and it was undoubtedly the worst uh, bit of PR I've, I've ever heard. So when they do do it, unfortunately, this guy they had on wasn't good. It wasn't Richard, was it? <laughs> if, it if it was, he's definitely improved. I, d- I don't think it was. I'd have recognised the voice. No, I mean, I've heard Richard in, in a few different places, and... Um... He's always been very well spoken and and he's always sold it really well. Um, but I just think that I mean it's difficult. It's such a difficult balance, isn't it, between actually doing the work that you're doing and then going out and advocating it. Yeah, the last time I think I saw somebody from Sousa was Ted Hagar in Lug Radio Live 2006, maybe. So yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, no doubt we'll talk to him again at some point. Anyway, as I said, but that'll do it for this episode. Then we'll be back in a, a couple of weeks hopefully with Ike recovered. Although last time he lost his voice, he lost it for about three months. So uh, yeah, let's uh, fingers crossed on that one. So until next time then, see you later. See ya. Yeah, bye all.